mi hija cuando yo la enterré, yo le hice una promesa que yo iba a estar hasta el final. When I buried my daughter, I made a promise to her that I was going to be there until the end. She's always been with me because I feel her presence, that she's with me. I go to the cemetery and I tell her, I won't ever stop demanding justice for you. She knows well, whatever she is, she knows that I will never leave her, ever. That's Vianney Claret Hernández Mejía speaking about her enduring dedication to her daughter, Ashley Angelique Rodríguez Hernández. I'm Henata Pepo, and you're listening to Women Resistant Violence, where we share stories from Latin American women transforming their communities through their fight against gender-based violence. We must warn you, this episode contains references to death and abuse that may be distressing for some. El 8 de marzo del 2017, on the 8th of March 2017, at 7.45 in the morning, 56 girls who were under the protection of the Guatemalan state burned alive in a 23-by-23-foot classroom. 41 of them lost their lives, and the 15 who managed to survive have scars and amputations that will make them remember, for the rest of their lives, this massacre which will be mourned in the history of Guatemala and the world. That's Steph Arreaga from Ocho Tijas, a feminist citizen group who have accompanied the families of the girls from the very beginning, from identifying the bodies to campaigning for justice. The girls, aged between 14 and 17, were under state care in an institutional children's home, Hogar Seguro Virgen de la Asunción, just outside Guatemala City, when they devastatingly lost their lives. Over four years later, there is still no justice for the girls' deaths. While the exact details are unclear, Kimi de Leon, a journalist and another member of Ocho Tijas, explains what led to the tragedy. Kimi wears a face mask during her interview. The institutionalization procedure for children, and particularly for women, is full of flaws. So the girls that need to be protected by the state are treated like criminals. They live in subhuman conditions or conditions where they are ill-treated. What happened was that a group of girls were fed up with the conditions they were living in. They saw the chance to escape. At one point, they started to file complaints. By now, they were ready to rebel. They were tracked down in the area and arrested. Later on, they were brought back by authorities. After a lot of discussion, um, the authorities decided to lock the girls in. Afterwards, as we know, a fire broke out. In that respect, we still not managed to explain exactly how the fire started. What we do know is that from there on, people started to build an official narrative that blamed the girls for having started the fire. They were being told that they weren't going to get out of the classroom for a very long time. They started making escape plans. Even now, we don't know how or who it was who started the fire. But the logical thing could be that the girls thought that when someone saw the smoke and opened the door, Every one of them would run for their lives. However, this isn't what happened. The classroom began to burn. Now we've talked to the teenagers and they tell us the fire was more or less controlled, but then in a moment, in a second, the fire got out of control and everything began to burn. 
los gritos de las niñas cada vez eran mucho más fuertes. The sound of the girls' screams was getting louder all the time. The police were laughing and making fun of them. Some of them recorded videos and took photographs. But other police officers began to realize that things were getting out of hand and looked for their boss, so that the padlock on the metal door could be opened. When the police arrived with their boss, they told us that they said, Boss, boss, the girls are burning. Open the door. You have the key. And the police said that the answer they got was, let them burn. Let them burn, those dirty little bitches. And they let them burn for over nine minutes. Seventeen died inside the classroom, and the rest were taken to hospital. Fueron llegando a los hospitales. In the face of this appalling tragedy, the women of Ocho Tijash gathered together, having followed the girls' previous complaints of abuse at the home, the suspicious death of one of the girls, and reports of possible human trafficking in the media. As the situation escalated, the women decided they had to intervene. Maira Jimenez is another founding member of Ocho Tijash, and also Steph's mother. So we are just normal people. We were in our homes and places of work, and we came together. So there are a lot of us who were friends, and we called each other uh, because all of this was going on on the TV. We started to think, what can we do? Some of us went to give support at the hospitals and some of us went straight to the home. We are going to help with whatever they need and in whatever way is going to be useful. So let's go. When we got to the home, it was just a tumult of people. There were a lot of families. There was no information or it was scarce. La información no fluía, era escasa. From the midst of the pain, confusion, and frustration over the lack of communication from the authorities, the women who became Ocho Tijash stepped up to attempt to provide the panicked families with the support and answers they needed. They compiled a list of the names of the girls who were yet to be found, which hospital they had been taken to, and who hadn't survived, and even accompanied families as they identified their daughters. That part was totally painful because the mothers were so overcome and some fainted. It was really intense, having to be, at that moment, the person who had to tell them about the deaths of their daughters, girls who had all their future ahead, who had lives, who had dreams, but who weren't there anymore, and that it had happened that they died in such a cruel way. That was the hardest thing. You see, right from the beginning, there we were, taking on roles that should have been done by government officials, right? This list later became the official register, the first list that made public all the names of the girls who had died and of those that had already gone to the hospitals. The community began to come together in a very important way. There were some very poor people who came with pans full of beans or rice 
Or they got up early to make tortillas, to bring lovely hot tortillas to the people waiting at the morgue. It was like a wave of compassion at that time. It was very special. And at no point did the state do anything. With this wave of human compassion and support, in the wake of the state's deficit, which even saw staff breastfeeding some of the children of the grieving families, the women who became Ocho Tihash developed an intensely strong bond with the families, connecting to their daughters under the most extreme circumstances. It's very unusual how we came to know the girls, their past and going into the future. We met them in the morgue. We met them when they were in a coffin. And later we got to know, little by little, something about the lives of each one of them, what they'd liked, what they'd been studying, what they'd want it to be. And all these things we got to know as time went on. And we came to love these girls very much, although we'd never known them in life. We became committed to them, to their memory. We made a promise to their families to find justice. Because after all these events, there was so much stigma surrounding these girls, around their mothers. People said that they deserved this, that they died because they were bad people, because they were delinquents. So there was that other side, that other side to society, and also such a strong stigma against the mothers, although not towards the fathers, towards the mothers, holding them directly responsible for the deaths of their own daughters. Asumimos ese compromiso. And so, we made that promise, and we also got involved in the legal fight from the outset. We represent 14 of the girls, nine dead and five survivors, through the Human Rights Firm, a group of lawyers who are helping us to present these cases that we've taken on. There were many more cases to begin with, but because of a lack of funds, we couldn't cover the cost of all of it, and had to leave some of the cases to the Survivors Foundation, another foundation that is helping a great deal in this situation. It was in the morgue where the women of Osho Tihash first met Vianney Hernández. I have been with the collective Osho Tihash since the beginning. They have been there for all of the moms, checking how we are doing, what is happening, also how we are psychologically, and they have helped us a lot. As a mother, I have been able to help other moms, and also I have looked for projects to help provide for them, because I feel it's not a commitment. It's a promise I made to my daughter, Ashley. And so for me, it's not longer just her, but the 41 girls, for me, they are my children, and I have to be there despite the discrimination we face. Thank God we found women who, despite the fact they didn't meet our daughters, they are here fighting with us, demanding our justice. The mothers and all who supported them are facing an uphill struggle, mired in prejudice, judicial obstructions and intimidation. Stefa Reaga. The lack of justice, the impunity in this case, how slow it's been, it's like psychological torture for the families. Because of the delays and the way the process progresses, 
even when the accused have more than five charges against them, including murder. So certain people have been accused and some groups have already been in court. But it's important to mention that even after four and a half years, they haven't started the judgment process. It is all still in the intermediate stage, and there is even one group that is in its first stage. Vianney hasn't missed a hearing since the death of her daughter Ashley, despite the emotionally grueling process and disrespect shown towards the mothers. I try to be strong for the mothers, so they really see that if they can't be there, I'm there. Speaking on behalf of their daughters, I am one of the 56 girls who spoke as person because the other mothers can't be there. Some of them work. We have low incomes. There are many mothers who aren't well. They have been supported psychologically. Um, they haven't put up with the fact that during the hearings, they have discriminated against us. They have told us we can't cry. We can't even look at them. Like one would say, we were to blame for the girls being there, for the girls having been killed there. It's frustrating, cansado de estar y de estar yendo. It's frustrating, tiring, coming and going. They cancel the hearings. They constantly change judges. Uh, it's something that bothers me so, so much. The case isn't developing. It's stalled. The pandemic has made it worse. We are in a worse situation. So it's worrying for us, the mothers. It's a blessing to have people who don't work for It is a blessing to have people who don't work for the government, who are fighting for our cause, because no one from any state not anyone from the state of Guatemala has come to any of the mums, to anyone, to say, look, we are going to investigate, we are going to expedite the case to ensure that there is justice. Honestly, the state doesn't care about the children. I myself brought my daughter to the home because she ran away. She ran away from ours, and it was me directly who brought her there to protect her from, from some people she had befriended. The state told me personally that she was going to be properly looked after, that she was going to be okay, that she was going to be educated, that she was going to have everything she needed. She's going to be better than she was with you. So, it simply wasn't true. It wasn't true, and my daughter was suffering at that place. On top of this, widespread preconceptions about why the girls were in the home in the first place fuels further prejudice. Many assume that they were there for criminal activity. Mayra Jimenez. Ahí las niñas estaban por diferentes causas. The thing is, the girls were there for different reasons, on the top of gangs. These things with the gangs, maras, as we call them here in Guatemala, in those places in the city, the red songs, they try to get some of the girls into the gangs. 
and there were mothers who, to protect their daughters, they'd been told about the home, and they decided that they should send their daughters there to protect the life of those girls. Given that the girls were under state protection when the tragedy occurred, the constant obstructions to delay the legal process, which has implicated many significant figures in government and the police, may seem unsurprising. Vianney explains. Um, what's happening is that they don't want to because there is a lot about it. The girls were discriminated against inside the home. They were beaten. They were raped. There was a child trafficking network. There was a lot of stuff they did to the girls inside. So it's inconvenient for them to have a proper investigation. Investigación a fondo, Realmente, yo siendo mamá de una niña de 14 años, no puedo entender la fortaleza que viene ella tenido. And really, as a mother myself to a girl of 14, I can't comprehend the strength that Vianney has needed to keep herself going through everything that's happened to her. My daughter is exactly the same age as Ashley when she was murdered. I see my daughter smile. I watch her sleep. I look at her hands, her feet, the way she walks, her gestures. And I enjoy all these things, seeing these things. You see? And that's how it is for Vianney. She's a woman who we admire for her resilience. Just seeing her strength of will to keep fighting for justice, for her daughter and for all the others. Alongside supporting the families directly, Kimi de Leon from Ocho Tijas decided to create Nos Duelen 56, We Mourn the 56, a global art campaign to both commemorate the girls and try and raise awareness of the case and their quest for justice. We thought we should do something to commemorate the girls because a lot of people were attacking the families online and in, and in the media. They were victimizing them all over again. So I came up with the idea of creating the global action Nos Duelen 56. We mourn the 56. So I thought about bringing different artists together, men and women from Guatemala and other parts of the world, to illustrate the girls. Not even a month has passed since the crime when we thought of inviting the artists. So we sent each artist the photo archive we had, along with the names. We sent them some data, like what they wanted to be, what they studied, what they liked. Based on that, each artist got inspired and did a portrait. The styles were unique to each artist. We simply told them it was to honor the lives of each one of the girls and that they should do what inspired them. We thought of art as a language that could help us not only to remember the girls, but also to have other narratives that will move the nation emotionally. We hope that people will start to be more empathetic with a cause like these, with the girls and their families. It wasn't just a way to fight against the lack of information. The girls' families were really moved by the portraits. Only a few minutes ago, one of the moms told us that she'd been walking in the street that she'd seen the portrait of one of her daughters on the wall and that it had a huge impact on her. I think what we aimed to do was honor their memory. The family's help allowed us to achieve these and they were very moved by it all. 
ellas estaban muy conmovidas. Y me dio tristeza, nostalgia. I was sad, nostalgic, knowing that the girls were painted by other people without having looked at them, without having met them. And I felt, I felt happy because I knew there were people that, that were there with us fighting to look for justice. Y, y de la mía, me gustó porque... And mine? Ah, I like it because Ashley wore many colors. She used lots of colors. And I like it because she was like that. She was a kid with a strong character. She was temperamental. I mean, she was like that, angry, but at the same time with me. With me, she was happy. She was a kid who, who was always by my side, the youngest, and who was a rebel and strong. She loved me a lot. She'd play with me. She said, teach me how to dance. You can dance. I can't, she said, and we dance. The portrait they made, I like it. I could link it to her. They're nice, the girls' portraits. Son muy bonitas las imágenes de, de las niñas. El activismo de la Acción Global nos duele en 56. The Global Action nos duele en 56. We call it a cry from art to try to create a permanent act of remembrance that visibilizes and honors the 41 girls who died and the 15 who survived. Nos duele en 56 is also a permanent campaign whose purpose is to be there throughout the criminal proceedings and the search for justice. At the beginning, we drew up a plan. In the first year, there were options to do things in person. We had connections with artists and singers. For example, a feminist artist called Rebecca Lane became a sort of ambassador for the campaign and the families. She managed to gain a lot of support for the families. In fact, she just brought out her latest video clip recently. It featured the Nos Duelen 56 campaign, and part of the video is dedicated to the girls. The illustrations of the artists who participated in the campaign also featured. While art has been essential to the global visibility of the campaign, community-originated memorial sites, which also include art, have become sites around which mothers can mourn, supporters can gather, and protests can start from. From the moment the tragedy became known, Maida explains people instinctively gather to commemorate the girls outside the presidential palace. When we were in the morgue, the community began to react. People began to meet in the Central Park. We didn't see this. We knew about it many, many days later. And we saw some moving photos of the whole Central Square. People brought flowers, candles. That very same year, 2017, something came into being. Some of our colleagues, in particular with some of the families of the dead girls, well, in the Central Park at the Plaza of Las Niñas, the girls' square, as 
they name it, they put up a commemorative plaque. All the names of the 41 girls who died are mentioned on it, and it was put in the center of the park. The families also decided to make a circle of 41 crosses made by one of the moms of the dead girls. Fueron arrancadas eh, por orden de el entonces ministro de Cultura y Deporte. And they were ripped up by order of the then Minister of Culture and Sports, who was in charge under the government of Jimmy Morales. He ordered them to be taken down because they were a danger. They represented a danger. In inverted commas, <laughs> I mean, what danger could some cross represent? The government put a memorial up in the ground of the Hogar Seguro, the safe home. It is like on a wall, and all the girls' names are inscribed on it. Many of the names are misspelled, and there is one that is repeated. Nobody's going to go there, and it represents nothing. Anyway, the moms put up more crosses, helped by some of our feminist colleagues that work and fight for human rights. And also some Mayan women carry out several ceremonies. That place is representative of the girls. Representativo de las niñas. Visible defiance in the face of a continual lack of justice has meant the memorial has come under consistent attacks over the last four years, from the initial government-mandated removal to more recent vandalism. The crosses have been attacked several times, some five or six days ago. The space appeared to have been burned. The crosses ripped out, broken, and that is the most recent attack we have had on the memorial for the girls. Let's say it is a pretty obvious message of evident contempt, of hate for the girls and for what happened. It sows seeds of horror, of terror and of pain, above all in the families and in the groups that are interested in this case. In the families and the groups that are interested in the case. The Plaza de las Niñas and Hogar Seguro Memorial Site have become symbolic of the brutal disregard for female life in Guatemala more broadly. Steph Arreaga. The space, the square of the girls, became the center, a central location for protests. There have been lots of protests, above all feminist protests. Only from the beginning of this year, there have been between two and three femicides per day and disappearances. Of girls, of women, and teenagers, there have been more than 15 disappearances per day. So when we women meet, we go to the Plaza de las Niñas, the square of the girls. We gather around the crosses where the names of the dead girls are. We chant, we bring flowers, we bring candles, and they do the Mayan ceremonies. It's become a very important place for our fight, an important space where we can shout out, where we can demand our rights. It's become a place for the search for dignity for women, for girls, 
and for the search for justice, as ever for the case of Hogar Seguro, the safe home, and other cases where there is still impunity for crimes against women. We believe that art is a cry for justice. It's a social expression. El arte es un grito, es una expresión social. Yet initially, a tension existed for Vianney between how she felt about the memorial and how she felt about the court case. En un principio, eh, ya no quería saber nada de las cruz, nada. In the beginning, mm, I didn't want to know anything about the crosses, anything. I didn't want to because my goal wasn't to be there in the square. I care more about the hearings. Sometimes there are moms who, who annoy me. I got annoyed because I tell them, let's go to the hearings, let's go to the hearings. The most important thing is that we are there. Then I got upset because I tell them I am by myself there. But now I am also involved in this with the collective in the square for the girls demanding, shouting, supporting each other, other compañeras who are also fighting. So our voice is heard, heard everywhere. Que se oiga la voz. Estas familias están acostumbradas al desprecio. Look, the families, I wanted to say something. It's probably very difficult, very sad, but these families are accustomed to being despised, disliked, used to poverty, and in their whole lives they've hardly ever been given a hug or had expressions of compassion for the situation they are in or about their complaints. So for them, to have spaces that memorialize their daughters, that's something that fills their hearts. Es algo que les llena mucho el corazón. Hope and endurance are definitely needed in the ongoing battle for justice for the deaths of the girls. Ocho tirage are not funded and struggle to secure the resources necessary to continue supporting the families in their legal fight. Kimi de Leon describes how Nos Duelen 56 ensures the campaign keeps going. To this day, the Nos Duelen 56 campaign has been dedicated to keeping track of journalistic records, producing texts, notes, essays, keeping the discussion on social media focused on the case every time there's an important change in the judicial process. Currently, it's basically online. Fortunately, the feminist movement has also made the campaign its own. So the majority of people use hashtag Nos Duelen 56 when making a feminist point. Of course, the relationship with the families is part of the campaign which includes bolstering the voices of the families as the protagonists of the story. And then there's the political advocacy that my colleagues work with. I also want to mention that this has been with zero resources. Many of the families have had serious security problems. Crimes have even been committed against them. Some of the femicide victim sisters, the sisters of the girls who died have been murdered along with their mothers. It is shocking that some of the mothers and sisters of the girls burned to death at the Hogar Seguro have themselves become victims of violence. With the lengthy court case and ongoing intimidation in Guatemala, Steph hopes justice can be sought in an international level. Entonces, hay un clima well, there is a climate of impunity, okay, of injustice. So after exhausting the legal processes here in Guatemala, in the national system, 
we think we'll take it to the international level, the International Court of Human Rights. Because it is really worrying that they're not giving this case the attention it deserves. And the sentences are going to be minimal even when they are handed down, if they are. Justice for me, Stefariaga, is the guarantee that what happened on the 7th and 8th of March 2017 in the safe home could never be repeated. And like Steph says, there needs to be proportional sentences, just sentences. Unfortunately, in the very depths of my heart, I'm telling you, and it is not because I am a pessimist, I am just a realist about this country, full of injustice. I think that it will be the reverse. They are postponing all of the hearings, the start of the judgment, the whole legal process. It is so slow, so broken up, so deficient, which all supports and benefits the accused. Respaldos, apoyos, beneficios para los sindicados. Están tratando de darle vuelta al proceso. They are trying to turn the process upside down and trying to criminalize the 15 survivors. The Guatemalan state was and will always be responsible for this massacre. And we understand that they have initiated proceedings against the 15 survivors, accusing them of being responsible for the deaths of their 41 companions. Como responsables de la muerte de sus 41 compañeras. It seems especially cruel to fix the blame for the deaths of 41 girls on the 15 survivors, who already have to cope with their traumatic experience alongside debilitating burns, amputations and poverty. Yet, some small solace can be taken from the incredible strength and resilience of the women who have gathered to support them. Guatemala is considered to be one of the worst countries to be a woman. It is one of the most unsafe places to be a woman in the world. The society is macho, super violent. We don't feel at all protected by the authorities and we don't feel protected by the institutions that should be there to protect us. So we protect ourselves, together as friends, together as women. We create ties of solidarity among us women, and we seek justice too, together as women, right? Entre mujeres, ¿verdad? The case of the 56 girls of the safe home is still being fought, and by listening to, reviewing and sharing this podcast, you can be part of a global effort to condemn this tragic loss of life and ensure that those responsible face justice. The government wants to erase our children's memory. And I can't allow it as a mother looking for justice. I need this to be known, not just in Guatemala, no, but everywhere else in the world. So this doesn't happen in other homes, in other places, or it doesn't happen again in Guatemala. You've been listening to Women Resisting Violence, presented by Renato Pepe and written and produced by Louise Morris. Special thanks to Vianney Claret Hernandez Mejia, Steph Arreaga, 
Maria Jimenez, and Kimi de Leon for sharing their stories with us. This podcast hopes to influence policy around gender-based violence and highlight the lessons and voices of those working on the front line in communities. We'd be grateful if you could add a review and share it widely to help us achieve this. Head to wrv.org.uk for more information about the project. Larissa Munoz, Alma Carvalho, Cecilia Cruz were the dubbing artists, Cristina Reynoso Lopez, Natasha Tinsley, and Hebe Powell, our translators, featuring music by Rebecca Lane and Eliane Correa as our recording engineer. Our special thanks to Yelke Boston and Rebecca Wilson. Women Resisting Violence was funded by a King's College London ESRC IAA grant through a fellowship with the Latin American Bureau. No daremos paz hasta que haya justicia.